This morning, we are wrapping up our message series on Build the Wall. And so that really means a couple of things. So number one, what it means is that this is the last message in this series about Nehemiah. That seems sort of obvious. Number two, it means that next Sunday, we will not be in Nehemiah. We'll be beginning a brand new series. Now, before we sort of wrap this one up, let me say just a really quick word about uh, where we're going next week. If you can, believe it or not, next Sunday is the first Sunday of November, people. Is that insane or what? It, the first Sunday of November, and um, when, when the calendar turns to November, I don't know about you, you probably are like me, I start thinking about Thanksgiving. It's like, yes, yeah, it's November, Thanksgiving's coming, great meals, and all this sort of thing. And as you think about Thanksgiving, your mind naturally starts to think all of the things that you're thankful for. And if we're all being honest, we have way more to be thankful for than we acknowledge most of the time. But there are seasons in our lives where, man, the blessings are just flowing rich and deep and wide, and man, life is just flowing, and you, you wish that it could be like that all the time. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I just kind of nod your head. You know what I'm talking about. You've had those moments in your life. You're just like, man, I wish it could be like this all the time. Next Sunday, we're going to begin a message uh, series called In the Zone. And I want to suggest to you this morning that based on what the Bible says, I believe we actually can have a life that stays in that sort of place almost all the time. And I would further suggest to you that that's actually what God wants for his people and so we're going to spend the next several weeks, beginning next Sunday, talking about how to live on a regular basis in this blessed life that we all dream about and God wants to deliver. Now, here's why that's important. That's not important not only for us, it's important for your friends. You, if you've got people that are not involved in church, you need to get them here next Sunday because they need to hear what God has to say to them about how to live a life that just stays in that blessed place. All right. So with that being said, we're going to look at the last few chapters of Nehemiah today. And I guess if I was going to characterize kind of what's left versus what we've done, I'd probably say it this way. We have enjoyed the main course and what's left in the last few chapters of Nehemiah is kind of like the dessert. It's kind of like that last little bit of the meal that just sort of polishes it off. But if I'm being honest, kind of the meat and potatoes of what Nehemiah has to share with us, we've already gone over. And so before we kind of move to the dessert, I want us to revisit briefly some of these really, really, really important pieces, some of these lessons that we cannot just blow by. We need to make sure that we wrap our arms around them and we let them sink deep into our heart and spirit this morning. So let me open up in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the day. We thank you that you are a God who is rebuilding us and restoring us. God, we thank you that we see this story lived out in the book of Nehemiah. So God, as we revisit some of uh, the lessons that we've learned and we look at the last few that we have for us from this, uh, from this amazing, incredible book, God, I pray that you will transform us, 
God, just do your work in each and every heart, in every soul, in every pair of hands, in every pair of feet this morning that is here. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. amen. All right. So, Let's start with some lessons to remember. And I encourage you to write these down, take pictures on the screen, do something. Make sure that you get these, church. So first and foremost, I want to remind you that God wants to restore you. And he wanted that for you before you even wanted it for yourself. Now, why does that matter? Because I think that for a lot of us, um, we sort of approach God in a way that is similar to our interactions with other people. I don't know if you've ever caught yourself thinking that God is going to respond the way that people do, but I think whether you do that consciously or unconsciously, I think that a lot of times we sort of view God and our interactions with God through the filter of how our interactions with other people go. So what do I mean by that? I think sometimes we're afraid to go to God and ask for forgiveness. Why? Because we've gone to other people and asked for forgiveness and what we got was a lecture. You can get forgiveness, you got a lecture. It it wasn't very uh, comforting, it wasn't very restorative. I think sometimes we need to go to God for love, but we don't go to God for love, why? Because we even acted with some people before where we went to them and we needed an affirmation of their love and, and their appreciation for us and what we got was condemnation and withdrawal. And so as a result, we sort of think God's gonna do the same thing to us, and so when we need to go to him and let him wrap his arms around us, we know we tried that with somebody else and they wouldn't do that for us, and so we sort of draw back from surrendering ourselves to God. I think sometimes we think about that, man, I would love to go back and be in that place with God where my life is restored. I want to go back to that place where I was, I was walking with him and I felt his comfort and I knew that he loved me and I, I knew that he approved of me and I knew that life was moving in the right direction. I would love to go back to that place in my life. But you've tried to go back to that place with somebody else that you knew. The relationship was damaged. And as it became damaged somewhere along the line, you knew, man, I, I want to go back. I want to get that restored. And when you went to restore, you found out that your heart was ready for restoration, but they didn't want it. And it hurts. And so consciously and unconsciously, all of our interactions and dealings with people often get reflected in our interactions with God and we think he's going to do the exact same thing that somebody else did to us in church. I'm here to tell you this morning, thank the good Lord, he is not like us. And so you're sitting here this morning and maybe you've been sitting here through this whole series and you think, man, I would love to go back to that place, but I can't because I want it, but I don't think God does. I have passed my season I lost my window of opportunity. I don't have anything left to offer. And I'm telling you this morning, get that thought out of your mind because God wanted you restored long before you even thought of it yourself. See, I read the scripture and it says that he that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
and that we're his masterpiece, we're his workmanship created into good works before the foundation of the world. God said, hey, I got a plan for you. I know what it's gonna look like. And when you get off course, I don't care where you are. I wanna restore you back because I wanna finish the work I did in you and it's, and it's for a great and noble purpose. So the day that you say, God, I want to be restored, he's already there. And so this morning, I want you to know that in your personal life, God wants to restore you and he is ready to meet you there before you even get there. I also want to say that God wants to restore Orchardville Church. As I read the story of, uh, of Nehemiah, as I mentioned in, in week one, there's a, there's a backstory to every story, right? There's a story before the story. And you may remember that in the story before the story, that there had been some people that had gone back and, uh, and they, had, they had rebuilt the altar and then some people had rebuilt the temple, but they had not been able to rebuild the walls. And in that backstory, when Ezra was seeing the foundation laid for the new temple, in Ezra chapter three, we, we read a story where uh, the, some of the priests and the elders in the congregation who once upon a time had seen the glory of the temple that God had built, they wept when the new one was being laid, when the foundation was being laid. There were other people that were rejoicing. This is fantastic. And there were other people that were weeping. Why? Because they knew what it used to be. They knew what it used to be. And they were thinking, we have lost our chance. There was, there was a time when God's hand was, was on us and we, we messed up and now we can, we can do a little something but it's never gonna be what it was. But Haggai, whose ministry was taking place in the exact same period of time, Haggai in, in uh, let's see, which, which, Haggai chapter two, um, he made this incredible statement. He said that the glory of the latter temple will be greater than the glory of the first. And he's saying, you know what? God's got this. He that began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. And it was purposed before the foundation of the world, before one spade of dirt was ever turned on this property in this church. God had a plan for this church and it's a plan for good. And God is not done here. And I don't want to believe that we're just going to limp for the rest of the season that God has for the ministry of this church. I want to believe what Isaiah said. God is doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? God is ready to raise this place up and take over Southern Illinois for the cause of Christ. Amen? And we get to be his partners in that. And, and I want to let you know that I, can't, I, I held so much value in all that has come before us. I've listened to, to Mark Shell's messages on, online. 
What a wonderful man of God. I know the work and the love and the care and the blood and the sweat that Mark and Kay Shell put into this, into this church. I know that's true of many, many of you that are sitting here. And when you lose someone like that, it is painful because you've, you've plowed this field with them and now God has, has taken him on to be with the Lord and she has moved on because she lost her husband. And so now you're like, what do we do, Lord? Where do we go from here? And the Lord has brought Leslie, man. I'm gonna ask Leslie to just stand up with me for a second. I'll put my arm around her because we have talked often about this. God has given us a love for Orchardville Church. He's given us a love for you. A love that surprises even us because we left our boys behind. We left dear, dear friends like Stephanie behind in Peoria. But he didn't bring us down here to neglect what was done before us. He brought us down here to build on it. And today is the conclusion of six full months of ministry here. Hard to believe, huh? And we're ready to stand on the wall with you. We're ready to have vision with you. We're ready to believe God for the future with you. Because God's not done. He's not done with you. He's not done with our church. There's great days ahead because that's who God is. The next thing I want you to to know this morning is start with prayer first. Whenever God starts working something in your life, don't look at prayer as a last resort because that's how most of us do. Start with prayer first. That's what Nehemiah did and and it set the tone for everything that followed. Whenever God is working in your heart, working in your spirit, go to God first. Start praying for wisdom. Start praying for clarity. Start praying for him to bring people around you that will speak into what he is speaking to affirm and confirm what he's saying. Go to God first. Start with prayer. The next thing I want you to remember this morning is don't focus on your credentials. Focus on God's call on your life. And I'll I'll put it this way. When God wanted to build an ark, he didn't call a shipbuilder. When God wanted to build a wall, he didn't call an architect. And when God wants to do something in somebody's life, here's what happens for most Christians, way too many Christians, is that we start to feel God doing something and we start to look at what we think he might be asking us to do and we start looking at what we can and can't do. We go, well, I don't have that skill set or I don't have that experience and so I can't do that. God must not be calling me to do that. But let me hear, listen, let me tell you something. If you can do it without God, God probably ain't in it in the first place. It's okay to clap. Remember we read that last week, the amen, amen. That was part of the Old Testament too. If you can do what you're thinking about doing without God being involved, it's probably not of God in the first place. When God wants to do something, he will usually say, I want you to look through this bag of clubs. You might know that it's in there, but I've got it in there. And I want you to do something that maybe you've never done before. You know why? Because I want you to know that it's me that you're counting on. Amen. 
And some of you, as we move forward into what's ahead for Orchardville Church, God is already stirring in some of your spirits. And you're going, well, I've never done that, so I can't, I can't do that. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus Christ. Because that is not of the Lord, that is of the devil. Because God, so Jesus said, with, with man it's impossible, with God all things are what? Possible. With God I can do anything. So stop looking at your own credentials and focus on God's call for your life. The next one is to be bold. Take a risk. See, when you've prayed about it and you're starting to get affirmation from God through whatever avenue that you're seeking, stop being scared. Step out into what God is doing and be bold and take a risk. And I would tell you this morning that probably nothing ever significant has ever been done for God without somebody taking a risk first. Somebody should say amen to that. Somebody's got to step out and take a chance. And when you do, God starts to part waters miraculously. He starts to make walls around Jericho fall miraculously. How stupid is it to march a band around a wall of a city and expect that the wall to fall down? I don't care how loud you play, that ain't happening. That's the dumbest strategy I've ever seen in my life. But if God said, that's what I want you to do, guess what? He'll figure out a way to make it happen. Just step out in faith, church. Take a chance. And I'll even go one further. Avoid room temperature Christianity. You know what? You know what assumes room temperature? Somebody say it. Dead stuff. You know that? Dead things assume room temperature. You know why? Because there's no life in them. So whatever's, whatever's going on, whatever the temperature is, that's what they become. And Jesus is really not big on room temperature Christianity. Revelation 3, 15 and 16. I'll put this on the screen for you. Jesus said, I know the works. You're neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Did Jesus just say that? Did God just say that in the Bible? Yes, he did. That's how disgusting he finds room temperature Christianity. And when we read that verse, I think sometimes we don't fully understand what he's saying. He said, you know, he's not talking about cold Christianity where they're not doing anything. He's talking about you can be refreshing if you're hot. You can be refreshing if you're cold. But if you're room temperature, there's nothing going on. You have just taken on the flavor of the culture. God does not want dead Christianity. We serve a risen Savior. We need to have a living faith. One more thing is watch out for sand ballots. Whenever you start to move in the direction of God, you can take it to the bank. Somebody's going to criticize you. It's going to happen. Know that it's going to happen. And so be on the lookout for the sand ballots out there. The people who will stand up and start trying to throw you curveballs get you off track of the direction that you are pursuing God in. But not only do I want to tell you this morning, be on the lookout for sand ballots, don't be one. 
It drives me crazy, church, how many times somebody gets stirred up to to pursue something that God has laid on their, their heart, and in the church, in the church, there's somebody over here going, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I know what you did a couple of years ago. You got no business even thinking about that. You should just sit down and shut up. Does it happen? You know it happens. Be on the lookout for Sam Ballas Church, but don't you dare be one. When someone starts to talk about something that God has laid on their heart, you encourage their hand, you pray with them for it, but don't you dare start shooting it down. Look out for them, but don't be one. Next point is commit or recommit. See, when God, when God restores you, that's a starting place. When, when you get the wall built back up, that's a starting place. But church, that's not the ending place. We have to make a commitment to where God wants us to go. I would tell you this morning that I think one of the most damaging and dangerous works in the modern English language and within the church is the word maybe. Well, can you do this? Well, maybe. Will you show up for this? Well, I don't know, maybe. Hey, can you serve over here? Well, I'm not sure, maybe. That's a spiritual way of saying no. Jesus wasn't too big on that either. You might remember this from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. Jesus said this, just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't, because anything beyond this is from the devil. In the, in the King James language, he said, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Don't beat around the bush. Don't tell somebody maybe. That is one of the worst words in our language today, church. Say yes and commit or say no and move on. Don't live in the hanging balance of life. Don't leave somebody else hanging in the balance of life. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Make a decision and live with it. Following that, we need to refocus on what's truly important. And that's God first. See, we can, we can recommit to God. We say, God, you've restored me. You've helped me build these walls back up. God, I'm committed to you. But what does that mean? What does it mean when I'm recommitted to God? It means that I am refocused on God having first priority in all things. First priority. Church, did you hear that? That recommitment means that we need to refocus on what it means to live, and that means that we're putting God first in everything. You should say that like you mean it. And lastly, be ready for what's next. 
because change will always be part of your growth. Do you know that, that growth by its very nature means change? When your kids are growing, did they stay identically the same? They changed, did they not? I mean, their physical size changed, their appearance changed, their behavior and attitude changed. Yay. You're just praying, Lord, get me through it. Growth means change. And man, we get so used to things being the way that we like them. And we say, well, we want to grow. No, you don't, because grow means change. And you don't want to change. And so when we, when we refocus on what God wants, God says, get ready, because you know why? Change is coming. Because if you want growth, there's going to be change. I think we cannot finish this series without reminding ourselves of these incredibly important lessons to remember. But now let's kind of go to the dessert of our series. Chapter, ne- chapter 11, Nehemiah. Now I'm not going to read through all the verses, but I am going to just kind of holler out verses and I'm going to point out a couple things as we look at them. So verse 9 In Nehemiah chapter 11, someone is listed as their overseer, and someone is listed as second over the city. In verse 11, we see someone who is identified as the leader of the house of God. In verse 12, we see some other people who did the work of the house. In verse 16, we see someone with oversight of the business outside the house of God. Verse 19, we see some people who are identified as the gatekeepers and the brethren who kept the gates. Verse 23, there's another group of people that were described as somebody that a portion of them should be singers. And then in verse 24, another person identified as the king's deputy in all matters concerning the people. Now, why do I point that out? What's the value in that for us this morning? Here's the value. Everybody had a job. Church and God's organization, in his church here and in his kingdom to come, there are no spectators, there are only participants. See, in American Christianity, we've created this idea that you show up at church, which is the gathering of God's people for the purpose of ministry and the edification of the saints. And the, this, this basically becomes the playing field, the, the you know, goal line to goal line. And I'll just say that this is the stands. And so your job is to come and sit in the stands and eat peanuts and drink Cokes. And then if they make a good play every now and then go, oh yeah, that was a good play. Run it again. And if they don't like, if you don't like the play, go, boo. Throw the bum out. Don't say that. Don't say that anymore. (laughs) In God's organization, there should be nobody in the stands. You hear me? 
in God's organization, there are no bleacher Christians. There's only on the field Christians. When you say yes to Jesus, you are throwing off the jersey of the world. You are putting on your team Jesus jersey. You're saying, coach, put me in. I'm on the field. I'm ready to play. And when you read through Nehemiah 11, it wasn't optional. Well, you know, if you'd like to do such and such, we would have an opening for you. Or if you would be so kind, maybe on your good days, maybe you could consider possibly just potentially doing this thing for once in a while. Church, it wasn't an option. There were assignments. Why? Because in God's organization, everybody works. I'll say that again. In God's organization, church, everybody works. Amen. We'll put three verses on the screen for you. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. And then he wrote in Ephesians 4, 16, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. Now, let's just remind ourselves, if you have said yes to Jesus, if you've accepted salvation, are you a part of the body of Christ? Yes, okay, just making sure. He makes the whole body, if you, if you belong to Jesus, you're part of the whole body. He makes the whole body fit perfectly together and each part, are you a part of the body of Christ? Yes. Okay, each part does its own special, what's the next word? Work. So it's special work. Oh my goodness, work. Yes, work. Why? Because there's no spectators, only participants. Each part does its own special work as it helps the other parts grow, change. Oh, my goodness. We're counting on each other so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Listen, if you belong to Jesus Christ, working is not an exception. It is a mandate. It is an expectation of God that you are involved and serving. Why? Because our number one goal in our spiritual life is to be more like who? Jesus. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said that he didn't come to serve, but to what? To serve. So if our goal is to be like Jesus, then our expectation is to what? Serve. And Paul tells us that not only are we supposed to serve, but we're especially called to serve those who are in the household of faith, which would be who? Us, the church, each other. We're supposed to do good to each other. Why? So that we all benefit because each one has a part. Now, let me just make a, a clear and obvious call to service. In January, we start a brand new season of life here called Sunday Sync. 
be nine o'clock. We'll have age graded groups. And there are other people who think, well, I'm too old to serve or I'm too young to serve. You know what? Your serving of Jesus has no age restrictions nor limitations. Do you hear me? See, God's not, he doesn't check ID in terms of how old you are. He just says, are you living? Are you breathing? Are you alive? Do you belong to Christ? And you're supposed to serve. Period. It's pretty clear cut, wouldn't you say? All right. So in January, in our Sunday sync, we'll have age-graded groups meeting all around this this, uh, auditorium. All these classrooms, all these rooms are going to be full beginning in January. And they will be age-graded. That means that whatever season of life you're in, whatever age you are right now, there is a place for you to serve. Why? Because you have an opportunity to serve with peers, with brothers and sisters in the same season of life as you and to help each other grow. Why? Because serving is not age-limited nor restricted. So if you're 20 years old, we've got a place for you. If you're 75 years old, we got a place for you and everything in between. If you have not already signed up to help serve, you need to be back out here next Sunday morning, nine o'clock in the Burgess Lodge. We're training right now. We're beginning the training to help people understand what does it mean. And every one of these groups and every one of these classes, we need probably at least eight to 10 people to function the way God wants us to do. That means there's a place for you. And in God's kingdom, in his organization, everybody has a place to contribute. Let's move on. Nehemiah chapter 12. And I'm just going to skip most of what happens in, uh, in the first part of the verse. And I'm going to read three different verses, beginning in verse 27. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... They sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singing, and cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem from the villages of the Natathathites. Now skip down to verse 43, Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43. And also that day... They offered great sacrifices and they rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. Now I want you to catch this last phrase because this is so cool. So that the joy of Jerusalem was heard, where? Afar off. (laughs) How cool is that? The joy of Jerusalem was heard Way, 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 way over here. How can that be? Because they were making a ruckus. Why? Because God was good. They were making some noise. Why? Because God was good. They were letting everybody know, hey, God is what? He's good. Amen. I don't know how we got to the place where we think when we come, we got to be a bunch of church mice. That does not give praise to the Lord. 
And he said, if you won't do it, I'll make the rocks what? Cry out. I'm going to make them shout if you won't. Church, don't let the rocks outcry you, outshout you, outworship you, outsing you, outlove the Lord. Amen? When we get together, we ought to lift the roof off of this place because we have come to worship a good God. Amen, brother. All right. Nehemiah 13. Up to this point, in the first few verses of Nehemiah, he tells us that they gathered for a service and they, they began to read from the book of Moses and they discovered while they were reading that they, there's some problems. They're not doing something quite right. Now, that might sound surprising to you, given what we've learned over the last few weeks, that, wow, they've just finished building the wall, they've just dedicated the wall, how is it that at this point that they can actually be doing something wrong? Verse 6, we discover why there's a problem. Look at verse 6 in Nehemiah 13. He says, but during this, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king, and then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. Now, here's, here's what's going on. Do you remember when Nehemiah went to the king, and he told the king what he wanted to do, and then the king said, how long will you be gone? Do you remember that? And Nehemiah made a promise to return. Well, Nehemiah was a man of his word. So in this section, as well as in chapter 5, verse 14, what we realize is that Nehemiah served a 12-year term as governor of Jerusalem, and when his term as governor was done, he went back to King Artaxerxes like he promised that he would. Now, we don't know how long he was there because the Bible doesn't really tell us. All it says in verse 6, that after certain days... That's all we know. Now, there are some people that think that after certain days was a term that was used to mean one year. It could be longer. We have no way of truly knowing because the Bible doesn't tell us. But whatever it was, Nehemiah had accomplished the rebuilding of the wall, the recommitment, the rededication. He finished his term and he went back to the king of Persia. But he didn't want to stay there. When he got back, he started asking, can I go back? And so finally, the king sent him back to Jerusalem. And when he gets back, he discovers that all of this stuff that they had just agreed to, the recommitments and the being refocused, had all fallen apart. Have you felt like you've been there before? Man, you, you made a, this recommitment to the Lord. You were refocused on doing the right thing, but sooner or later, days go by, months go by, years go by, and you're right back where you were when you started. Ever been there? That's what Nehemiah discovered. And church, what I want to tell you this morning, that's why we have to keep coming back to the word of God over and over and over again. It's why we have to keep coming back to church over and over and over again so that we can stay on course. When I was in the army, um, 
one of the most important skills that we could have was a skill called land navigation. And uh, some of you in here might have done that before yourself. But you get a map and you have somewhere where you know you're supposed to go and you have to kind of figure out where you are. And once you do, then you can calculate, here's where I am, that's where I have to go, and it is 10 clicks, which clicks was a military term for kilometer, and so that's basically 6.4 miles. So I know I gotta go 6.4 miles to get where I'm going. I'm here, I'm going 6.4 miles, so that's what I'm doing. Now, how many of you know that if you walk, you are prone to kind of, in the, when it's all said and done, you're prone to walk in a circle? Did you know that? Raise your hand if you knew that. Okay, so if you didn't know that, that's, that's news to you this morning. That's, if you're right-handed, you will tend to walk in a right-handed circle. If you're left-handed, you will tend to walk in a left-handed circle. It's just how we are. That's why we need a compass. And so you figure out where you are. I got 6.4 miles. I got 10 clicks to go that way. And you, you get your azimuth, your bearing on where you go, and you start going. Now, if I know that I'm going to go 6.4 miles or 10 clicks this way, how smart is it is if I just start walking and go, hey, I'll walk until I count to 10 miles or 10 clicks and I'm good. How many of you think I'm going to wind up where I'm supposed to? Not a chance. So here's what you learn in the army. Okay, so I'm standing right here and I know that I've got to go 10 clicks, but I know good and well I can't walk in a straight line. I can't. So you know what I do? is I shoot a, a line in the direction that I know is where my, my uh, goal is, and I find a point that I can identify, that I can visually see somewhere between me, he, me and there. And I walk in a straight line until I reach this particular focal point. And when I get to this focal point, you know what I do? I reshoot my line again to make sure that I'm moving in the right direction. You know why I do that? So that I can make sure that I wind up where I'm supposed to wind up. And church, this is why we have to come back to the church. You know why? Because we are prone to wander. We are never safe from wandering. I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. Sheep are prone to wander. You ever wonder why the Lord calls us sheep? It's because we are prone to wander. And it's why we have to keep coming back to the word of God and to the church over and over and over again because it gives us that focal point where we stop, we get our bearings again, and we make sure that we're still on course. Amen? I'm gonna ask a worship team to come as we prepare for, to respond to the message this morning. There's a couple things going on this morning. We're gonna observe communion and we're gonna finish our wall. We were able to finish our wall up here this week we're going to finish together building our wall out over here on either side. 
So what I'm going to do, here's how this is going to work. We've asked it wherever you are every week to get up, come to the wall on either side of the, of the auditorium, and place your rock in the wall. To lead the way this morning, I'm going to ask those, and, and just hold on, hear me out. I'm going to ask those who are serving communion to go first. And then after they have gone, then I'm going to ask them to come and take their positions as communion servers. And then the rest of you, as you go to the wall this morning and you drop your rock in, once you've dropped your rock in, then you go to wherever you can receive communion, take the elements and return to your seat. Everybody follow that? Did I, did I explain that well? All right, so our communion servers will go first. And then they will take their stations and then everybody else will go and drop their rock in the wall and before you return to your seat, then stop, get your communion elements and go back. We also want to encourage um, those of you with children uh, who may be young but in, you know that they've come to Christ and we're also wanting to encourage dads and moms to take spiritual leadership in their home. So if you've got a small child in children's ministry, we have communion elements for them. And if you would like to lead and observe communion with your children, we're gonna start doing that this morning. So we'll dismiss you from the service after you drop your rock in the wall and you can participate in communion with your child. You can lead them in communion this morning. All the elements will be back there. Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask the musicians to go ahead and play. We've covered a lot of ground over the last five Sundays. And this morning, I'm gonna ask you to let this be whatever it needs to be. Whether there's still something that needs to be rebuilt in your life, whether there's a recommitment that needs to be made, whether you need to be putting God first in your life again, whether you need to be just embracing change and serving, whatever God has laid on your heart over the course of these five Sundays and this morning. Let that be represented by what you put in the wall. So I'm going to ask everybody to just kind of hold your rock up this morning. God, as we finish this series this morning, I pray that this will become symbolic. God, that it will mean something deep, lasting and permanent. God, that as you rebuild our lives, you rebuild our church. And God, as you do that, your name is lifted high. God, build the families in this church. Build the ministries in this church. And God, build your kingdom through this church. We ask this, Lord, in your name.